Hey folks, Brian Cook, your host here with a couple of words from our sponsor, T-Fury. T-Fury is the original pop culture t-shirt destination, selling unique designs every day since 2008. You can snag their shirts for only 24 hours starting at midnight. Missing a shirt from the past and want to get it again? Head to the T-Fury Gallery, where you can buy some old designs still in print and vote on others to come back from the dead. Every two to four weeks, T-Fury add more designs to their gallery, so be sure to keep an eye out for the return of your favorite shirts. T-Fury shirts cover all your favorite topics and fandoms. They've got everything from gaming, sci-fi, anime, TV, movies, pop culture, and more. Their t-shirts change daily, so check back as often as you'd like. Also, don't forget about the T-Fury After Hours sale. If you missed the day's shirts by only a little, they keep the sale going into the wee hours of the morning just for you. Check out tfury.com slash Nerdist and see what today's shirt is all about. Now entering Nerdist.com. Hello and welcome to episode 59 of the Competitive Erotic Fan Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Cook, and you've found the internet's number one most trusted source for Muppet boners and horny loners. Today we've got round one from a show recorded March 18th, 2014 at the Nerdmelt Theater in Los Angeles featuring Susanna Lee, Cole Stratton, John Roy, Guy Branham, and Jared Moskowitz reading pieces they wrote in advance based upon topics of their choosing. Enjoy. First round one competitor, Mr. John Roy. All right. Nice shirt. Oh, I thank you very much. I wish it was a show I actually went to, but it's uh, still a good shirt. Uh, oh, yeah, put that anywhere. Um, all right. A crowd of people were gathered in the early evening on a TV set in California. We were deep into the latest season of Bravo's top-rated food program the fattest fat man in the buffet of cable ratings, Top Chef. It was the most anticipated moment of the season, and the people in the top of the line KitchenAided Kitchen's nerve endings tingled with tension and anticipation. Like a redneck as he watches his Snickers bar go into the deep fryer at the Iowa State Fair, knowing that soon he will eat that gooey goodness. But it was not the finale of the show or the Tournament of Masters. In fact, the cameras weren't even on. This was not that bullshit show where Japanese people made sushi and acted like they won World War II. It wasn't the show where culinary school rejects tried to make meals out of biscuits and ding-dongs and Swedish fish. This was Top Chef, the king of them all. This was the show where tattooed assholes from Logan Square and Silver Lake <laughs> got drunk on dark beer and bitched at each other while pretentious chefs got paid to eat food and treat them like children at theater camp. <laughs> Despite all of its cheesiness, though, the show was riveting entertainment, mainly because the absolute best chefs in the world would actually judge the food. Why? Why lend their prestige to a show where a supermodel who had never ate a goddamn thing in her life berated grown, experienced chefs like they lost a spelling bee? It wasn't for free KitchenAid shit, thought Mario Batali as he sucked his fat fingers in anticipation. <laughs> It was for the world-famous secret Top Chef annual orgy, <laughs> where the titans of the culinary world could engage their most forbidden passions in a nonstop cascade of eating and coming. <laughs> As the assembled guests, each an Olympian in the pantheon of celebrity cooking, awaited the evening's events. 
Bravo stage crew put a series of mattresses down on the floor of the state-of-the-art kitchen, which had only recently been the set of this year's season, which due to budget cuts was Top Chef North Hollywood. <laughs> Up stood Pagma Lakshmi, statuesque Indian supermodel, her perfect cheekbones like a Michelangelo painting, if the notoriously gay painter was capable of painting a woman who didn't look like Channing Tatum with a vagina. <laughs> Her stern expression would look so good, staring in vague disapproval as my jizz splattered her frowning lips like a dash of Baja crema on a crab quesadilla, <laughs> thought renowned Mexican fusionist Rick Bayless. <laughs> she spoke. Your quick fire challenge. She spoke slowly, as she always did, like she was explaining once again to the chimpanzee why not to throw his shit everywhere. The chef leaned in and inhaled. Everyone in the room was silent. Your quick-fire challenge is to prepare my pussy with a light Asian glaze using locally sourced ingredients from the NoHo Arts District. <laughs> with that, the studio erupted in chaos. Wally Dufresne, the renowned gastro chef who created flavorful sauces on a microscopic level but looks like a cross between Philip Seymour Hoffman and Mr. Wint, the gay assassin from Diamonds Are Forever. <laughs> covered Ms. Lakshmi's labia with foams and drizzles that went for $300 a plate in Upper Manhattan. As his tongue licked sea salt and teriyaki ice cream all over her clit, the color of a perfectly caramelized onion, the former wife of Salman Rushdie shouted out, fuck me like there's a fatwa on your cock. <laughs> Next to Padma was the hottest woman in food TV, the beautiful, knowledgeable, secret MILF obsession of every drunk glutton with basic cable, Gail Simmons of Food & Wine magazine. All year, Gail had to uphold her precious image as a distinguished sommelier, only drinking fine and dainty things, but this one time out of the year, she could let out her inner bad girl. She did the dirty thing she always longed to do and poured shitty supermarket wine all over her perfect round breasts. As the vinegary wino fuel flowed over her baby bottle nipples into the mouse of Rocco Despirito, she felt the orgasm build inside her as she got to perform her annual forbidden ritual, the two-buck-chuck-fucking-suck. Next to Rocco and Gail, bad boy food show host Anthony Bourdain, finishing shooting heroin in his ball sack, <laughs> used his favorite souvenirs, a Guatemalan butt plug and a flesh flight from Singapore, and a bottle of lube from the Castro, which he bought between the seafood and the burger section of the San Francisco episode last season. <laughs> He needed this release after his traumatic downsizing from an international cooking show to a local one. Those <laughs> bastards cut my budget, he thought. I was in St. Petersburg. I was in Tahiti. Now I'm picking the best wings at the Cleveland airport. <laughs> I need an androgynous punk rock fuck romp like I had when I was a junkie line cook giving Tom Berlain a handjob in CBGB's for drugs while fingering Patti Smith with the other hand. <laughs> He thought as he stroked Rocco's perfect Italian cock, smooth and erect like the most al dente penne in all of Napoli. <laughs> 
visiting Chef Gordon Ramsay indulged his secret submissive taboo. After berating subordinates all day long, Ramsay was ecstatic as fourth season Top Chef champion Stephanie Izzard yelled at him in a cruel parody of his own voice, Lick it! Lick it, Gordon! Does this look fucking clean to you? (laughs) Gordon had been very bad indeed. He cried delicious, submissive tears as he licked her asshole perfectly, just trying to do it right, like one of his own contestants, terrified about being sent home. (laughs) I want it clean, she said, imitating the British man's yell. I wanted to get an A from the city of Los Angeles. The tip of his wet tongue working her little asshole got her clit tingling, but her innocent Jewish girl image gave her a different taboo. She wanted some uncircumcised Eurocock and pushed Gordon away so that Eric Repair of the French Laundry could put his baguette into the now ready for sex ass of Chicago's top female restaurateur. <laughs> Jamie Oliver was having his first orgasm of the year. He had a special request of the producers. The crusader for healthy food in the school system had peculiar sexual needs. I need a girl dressed as Fat Oprah. (laughs) For reasons I can't explain quite particularly, but it feels right in my balls. (laughs) Rick Bayless, racked with guilt over appropriating the recipes of native Mexican cultures, (laughs) cried out as Gail poured the hottest green chili of Guadalajara into his penis hole. (laughs) It hurts so authentically, he shouted. Padma, who never actually ate any of the delicious food on the show in order to keep her figure, was finally free of the appearance-ist shackles of Hollywood and moaned with delight as she ate samples of every quick-fire challenge of the season she had previously spit out off the dicks of the world's greatest chefs. (laughs) And in the back, having sex with no one at all was the fat one himself. Mario Batali had his greatest turn-on a table full of food, and no one to eat it but himself. (laughs) Look at these fools wasting their time with their pussies, he thought. When they could all be eating, eating, eating! He jammed a white pizza with truffle oil into his fat mouth as he worked his pud like a deranged Humpty Dumpty. (laughs) And finally, Tom Colicchio, the host of the show, whose ego was only fed by jerking his own cock while people addressed him as chef, yelled, It's time for the annual finale that they did every year that this deranged, debauched gathering took place. When the chefs got to do the thing they had always dreamed of, the taboo you heard about through your dark decades of culinary education, of slave work in kitchens full of assholes, that legend that every culinary professional has heard but no one has actually done, the secret desire of all chefs for revenge against their slave owners and the asshole customers that drive them to 12-hour days for 20 years for low pay. In unison, the chefs all gathered around a giant vat of blue cheese dressing and collapsed with rise of pleasure as they reached orgasm right as Tom Colicchio yelled, pack your knives and go! And all of them ejaculated once into the blue cheese salad dressing and collapsed on the floor satiated with the naughty knowledge that that dressing would be served to everyone eating at Ristorante Mazza tonight. (laughs) 
That's it. John Roy. Osteria Matzah. I fucked up the name of the restaurant. Uh, anyway. All right. Bye. John Roy. Keep it going for Susanna Lee. Uh, my story is set in the 80s, and I might have to talk a little bit fast, so bear with me and keep up. I was a young girl when I began watching him on TV. I'd lay on the couch, squeezing a pillow between my schoolgirl thighs, blushing from the sensation, unsure of why. And now, here he was, standing above me. It was like a dream. One minute, a bespectacled page is leading me to my seat, and the next, a familiar voice booms out, Susanna Lee, come on down. You're the next contestant on The Price is Right. And here I am, standing on contestant's row at the feet of Bob motherfucking Barker in the flesh, bathed in stage light, his silver hair aglow. Rod, tell us about the first item up for bid on The Price is Right. It's a new bedroom set. This three-piece set is made from high-quality mahogany and includes a king-size bed, dresser, and armoire. This beautiful collection can be yours if... The price is right. Susanna, what do you bid? I resisted the urge to bid one dollar. <laughs> and ended up winning the round. Bob didn't look me in the eyes as I jumped for joy. Of course, this would be the day that I forgot to wear a bra under my tight, thin, low-cut tank top. I ran up the stairs, hugged Bob, and puckered up to kiss his cheek. He turned his head, catching my lips with his. I felt myself blush. Did Bob Barker just steal a kiss? <laughs> we walked over to the doorway of my prize gallery. He sat down onto the bed with his, leds, with his legs spread seductively. The growing bulge in his tight polyester slacks very apparent. I felt uneasy, not knowing if I was just imagining the sexy nature of what was going on or if Bob Barker was, in fact, giving me the business. <laughs> now, you've won the bedroom set, but I'd like you to win another prize, too, wouldn't you? I nodded. Bob rose from the bed and guided me to an area right next to the gallery, continuing. Here we have one of our most popular games, Hole in One. Are you familiar with how it's, the game is played? Of course I was. You're on a mini golf putting green, guessing the cost of household items, with each correct guess getting you a step closer to the hole, making it easier to get the winning hole in one. I aced that part and ended up at the line second closest to the hole. Handing me the golf club, he said, at the price is right, we want you to win. So we're going to have the Barker's Beauties assist you with the game. Ladies? Three Barker's Beauties emerged from backstage wearing the smallest of micro bikinis, the tops barely covering their stiff nipples. One stood next to me, two went to the end of the green. My beauty motioned for me to turn around and stood behind me. I could feel her hard nipples pressing into my back as she reached through my arms, but instead of grabbing the club, she began removing my shirt telling me through some weird mind-sharing power possessed only by these speechless beauties. <laughs> that it was simply too constrictive. <laughs> With my own hard nipples exposed, she turned my head to look at the hole, my gaze immediately landing on the second beauty who was facing away from me, kneeling down with her head on the ground just past the hole. <laughs> The third beauty was standing above her, bent over, spreading the bottom one's supple ass cheeks, exposing up her gaping coos. <clears throat> Aim for the hole, Bob said in a low, throaty voice. <laughs> They're 
fake. I was just trying to impress you. <laughs> my mind was blown, and I allowed the beauty behind me to take control. She put her hands over mine and swung the club hard. The ball shot down the green and bounced up at the end, tapping the kneeling beauty's glistening cockpit before falling perfectly into the hole. The beauties gathered around me, smiling and clapping, and led me to the wings where I was handed off to the same bespectacled page that had seated me. I stuck my hand up my short, short skirt to play with my velvety meat curtains as I waited backstage. <laughs> Conveniently, I had also forgotten to wear panties. The page returned. I'm sorry to interrupt, but you're needed for the next contestant's pricing game. I was again handed off to the beauties who led me to the current prize gallery. I was told to bend over, and when I did, the beauties bound my wrists to my ankles, pushed my skirt up to my waist, and inserted a ball gag into my mouth. <laughs> I craned my neck to look up and saw the current contestant blindfolded being led over to where I stood. Now I remembered her from contestants row where she'd been wearing a pink t-shirt claiming that Tampa teachers love Bob Barker, <laughs> matching the other six women in her group. Only now she was wearing nothing but a purple strap on and her name tag. <laughs> Debbie. <laughs> the game was introduced and I knew right away what was in store for me. It was Hilo. I was turned to face away from the audience and I felt the head of the strap-on bump against my inner thigh. Higher! The audience screamed. <laughs> and I felt the rubber cock fit right into the opening of my dripping honey pot. I moaned, but the crowd again began chanting, Higher! Higher! So Debbie again poked higher, landing smack dab in the middle of my rosebud. She thrust hard and popped the head inside my tight asshole. She kept pushing until the entire rubber cock was buried in me, the audience cheering her on. <laughs> One of the beauties knelt in front of me, tonguing my clitoris, and as I came so very hard, I wondered who the winner of this game really was. <laughs> now Debbie and I were led backstage and brought back, yet, back out yet again to help with the third contestant's game. I saw the set and my heart leapt with joy. It was my favorite game, cliffhanger. The contestant, a fat man from Ohio, was given the task of making both myself and Debbie come before the mountain climber fell off the top of the cliff. He wasted no time getting started, diving face first into my wet snatch while shoving three fingers into the teacher's furry love canal. The yodeling in the background seemed to get louder the closer I came to coming. I was on the brink of orgasm when the yodeling suddenly stopped and the third contestant was sent away a loser with nothing but memories and a year's supply of rice aroni as consolation. I looked at the audience and saw nothing but a sea of sex. The entire studio had turned into a CBS-sponsored orgy. Hand jobs, blow jobs, rim jobs. There was not a free hand among the crowd. Debbie's Tampa teachers group was clustered together in a finger-bang daisy chain. <laughs> I looked around the stage and saw Rod Roddy slobbing Bob's knob while the Barker's beauties took turns bobbing on Rod Roddy's rod. <laughs> and then I noticed that the final prize gallery door was slightly ajar. I made my way over and peeked inside. There was the page again, his hairless young body fully nude atop the hood of a new car. <laughs> A voice from behind startled me. It was Bob. He disengaged himself from his group and followed me. Our young friend here is new to the show and a virgin. As part of his initiation into the Price is Right family, he must be deflowered by a very special contestant. I turned to look at Bob, taking in his nudity for the first time. <laughs> his cock was long and thin, with a disproportionately large head, not unlike the signature <laughs> microphone. 
We crossed over to the young man together. I pushed him onto his back and took his manhood into my mouth. I shoved him farther down my throat, and when his cock had had reached its full potential, I replaced my mouth with my wet pussy, sliding him in balls deep. He gasped and began bucking and thrusting while Bob slid his cock into the boy's mouth. (laughs) He took to Bob's cock like a newborn calf nursing. I quickly climaxed and dismounted, and Bob motioned for him to flip over, replacing me between the page's legs. Bob grabbed a handful of his hair and began forcing himself into the cherry asshole, hissing into the boy's ear, Help control the pet population, you little stud! Have your pet spayed or neutered! I I saw that the page's thickly rimmed glasses had fallen off, so I picked them up, handed them to him, and with Bob still pounding away, asked him his name so I could send a proper thank you card later. (laughs) He looked me straight in the eyes and through his sweat and tears said, my name's Drew and someday I'm going to own this motherfucker. (laughs) Suzanne Lee! Keep it going for Cole Stratton. Uh, this is uh, inspired by the uh, greatest uh, film series of all time, Police Academy. Yeah! <laughs> In he walked, a confident, gum-chewing charmer with a mischievous grin and a curly black mop of hair. He wore denim cut-off shorts, red-striped tube socks, and a gray half-shirt that said, One in the oven with an arrow pointing down. <laughs> Mahoney, cried Commandant Lassard, <laughs> pausing for feeding his circling goldfish, excited to greet his star officer. Citizens, meet Gary Mahoney. My palms were sweaty. This guy is a motherfucking hero. His exploits were legendary. He took down the Scullions gang, stopped a ring of jewel thieves, and saved the governor from kidnappers, all the time thwarting the efforts of Captain Harrison Proctor to boot him from the forest. <laughs> Hell, he even got Lassard a podium blowjob. The man could do no wrong in my book. I only hoped I would measure up to his standards. I joined the COP program, Citizens on Patrol, after crime became unbearable on the streets of our unnamed American city, which is clearly Toronto because the CN Tower is visible in certain shots, but let's just consider it some sort of USA metropolis. I had gone through weeks of training. I learned self-defense from the gorgeous Lieutenant Callahan, whose knowledge of wrestling and martial arts was almost as vast as the flesh valley between her giant knockers. (laughs) Not only did I get proficient with the regulation police sidearm, thanks to Lieutenant Tackleberry, I also got to fire an Allen Springfield M1879 carbine rifle, an Imbil MD2 assault rifle, a mini Uzi, an L2A1 light machine gun, an M134 Gatling, a Magtech doorbuster, a Ruger 77 bolt action, a Sokolovsky automaster, a Taurus 44 five-shot Magnum, a Vandenberg volley gun, a Wanzel infantry rifle, a rack and pinion crossbow, an M23 three-shot super bazooka, and I threw a grenade or two. <laughs> Lieutenant Sweet Chuck and Hooks got me up on rules and regulations, though they were often hard to hear. I was ready. Mahoney smiled and sized us all up. Thank you all for volunteering. Tomorrow you'll do your first ride-along at 700 hours. You've been randomly assigned an officer. See you all in the morning. I've got a tube of superglue and a key to Harris's locker to see to. And with that, he left. 6 a.m., I rolled out of bed and headed down to the station. My head was racing. Who would I be paired with? And there he was, munching on a donut, awkwardly waving at me. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> it looks like 
alles. <laughs> Officer Zed. Former leader of the Scullions gang turned policeman. The very man my hero Mahoney had taken down. If they could make an officer out of him, they could make one out of me. Zed shook my hand aggressively. I'm excited. We're going to be best friends like Kanye and Icy. <laughs> We hadn't been cruising the streets for long when an APB came across the radio. All units report to 1522 Wallbanger Avenue. 444 in progress. 444? That's an officer-involved shooting. Zed hit the gas and sped away, a few moments later pulling up in front of a dark warehouse. We drew our weapons and ran as stealthily as we could towards a slightly ajar door. Zed nodded at me and headed inside. I followed a moment later. Suddenly, a blinding light shot into my eyes, and nothing could prepare me for what I would see a moment later when they cleared. Mahoney. Naked as David Cronenberg's lunch. <laughs> Sat behind a video camera. His mischievous cock standing at attention. Welcome to the force, kid, he said, adding, this is your first officer-involved shooting. Only the officers involved are the entire precinct, and we're shooting a goddamn magnificent suck-and-fuck film. And you're my new ingenue. Let's get you camera ready. Before I even knew what was happening, my pants were being loosened from behind me. Just go with it, cadet, a sultry voice said, and a moment later, my cock in training was deep under cover of Callahan's industrial strength lips. As she worked my sweaty sidearm to full mass, the police porno went into full production. Officer Hooks leaned back on a bed, her stubby legs spread far apart, her magnificent bush glistening as she rubbed her little personal police wand. She may have been shy, but her sexual appetite wasn't. She cried as she forced the head of massive Officer Hightower into her vaginal riot gear. As he tasted her, Hightower went into an almost trance-like state, quietly repeating, Ayama, yama, yama, yummy. A moment later, he took his mission to her Moscow and put her city under siege. Next to them, wearing nothing but his aviator shades, Tackleberry slid his 44 Magnum in and out of Sergeant Kirkland's dripping wet ammo box. Ammo box being her lubricated vagina, and the Magnum being an actual gun that he was barrel fucking her with. She was super into it, the danger of her pussy being blown off in extreme aphrodisiac. They were so in love. Sound effects master Officer Jones hovered over the two fucking couples, stroking himself while beatboxing. Your attention, please. I'm about to blow. As Jones's lips recreated the noise of a Gatling gun, his cum cannon did just that, spraying his seed serpentine across the room like an out-of-control water wiggle fun fountain or the first three rows of a Gallagher show. A bunch of teenage skateboarders, led by a miscast David Spade, hovered nearby. That's not fucking, this is fucking, cried Spade, and they all started jacking it late 80s style around the room. <laughs> Cadet Tomoko Nagata plowed a nearby female recruit with his absolutely massive dong, the only thing not stereotypically Asian the series would allow him to possess. <laughs> Even Carrie Mahoney got in on the act, engaged in slow lovemaking with Commandant Lassard, the two never breaking eye contact as they both emptied their holsters all over each other. Mahold me, <laughs> said Lassard, spooning post-coitus as the rest of the law enforcement fuckfest continued around them. 
Zed came in his own eyes like six times, <laughs> screaming incoherently as he quickly became wider than a Frisbee golf team. <laughs> Sweet Chuck wept naked in the corner, his flaccid penis on unpaid suspension. <laughs> Someone needed to send me a husky rescue, because my cock was lost deep inside of Callahan's Alps, which were about to get frosty for my first snowfall of the year. With a sudden jolt, I emptied my secret policeman's balls all over her, <laughs> collapsing in her firm embrace. As my eyes closed, I caught a glimpse of Mahoney, his commandant draped around him, who gave me a slow-mo salute. I knew I had done well enough for my first mission. Hightower nudged me. Hey, man, why don't you go into the other room and freshen up? That's in order. He pointed to a door at the back of the room. In a daze, I ambled towards the door, overwhelmed by what had just happened. As I opened it, I heard a familiar refrain. Yes, there I was inside the Blue Oyster Bar. Several leather-clad men smiling as I appeared there, who already had their hands full with Captain Harris. Proctor! He cried as his bumbling lackey fisted him so deep you might as well call him a proctorologist. <laughs> Soon I was added to the mix and it would become Police Academy 3 back-end training. <laughs> it was the best day of my life. Cole Stratton. Give it go for Jared Moskowitz. All right, so before I start, um, how many of you guys have seen the Nutty Professor movies with Eddie Murphy? Great, we're off to a good start. Uh, now, how many of you while watching those dinner scenes with the Klump family have thought, there's a lot of sexual tension going on here? <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Professor Sherman Klump wiped the sweat from his brow as he stood at the doorway of his parents' house with his wife, Denise, holding a white box. I sure hope tonight goes well, said Sherman. It's your parents' 40th wedding anniversary. Why wouldn't it, asked Denise. Well, it seems that whenever we all spend time together, my daddy and grandma really go at it, replied the rotund scholar. Remember that time we spent Easter in Florida together and he sent her to that 7-Eleven to buy Skittles and iced tea wearing a hoodie? <laughs> Don't worry, sweetheart. I'm sure everything will be fine, Denise said as she pressed the doorbell. I sure hope you're right, said Sherman, nervously eyeing the breast pocket of his suit jacket. A few seconds later, Sherman and Denise were exchanging pleasantries with his father, Cletus, and mother, Anna. Oh, it's so exciting to have you all here tonight. What's in the box? asked Anna curiously. Sherman opened the white box to reveal a beautiful display of cannolis. Ooh, I can't wait to put one of those inside me later, replied Anna. Mama, you look so good, said Denise to her mother-in-law. Have you been going to the gym? She don't need no gym to stay fit, said Cletus as he nuzzled his wife's neck. She got me to keep her tone and fit. They all laughed good-naturedly. That's not what I heard, said a voice from the kitchen. A second later, Grandma appeared in the hall in her electric wheelchair. Woman, I told you, said Cletus. Tonight is my anniversary. I don't want no acting up on your part or I will knock you all the way back to the days of Motown, you ebony fossil. <laughs> I ain't scared of you, she retorted. If the rest of your muscles work as poorly as the one you got between your legs, I got no reason to be afraid. <laughs> all right, all right, said Denise diplomatically. Come on, mama, let me help you get set the table. You too, grandma. 
Denise's mama and grandma headed for the kitchen gabbing about women stuff. You know, Denzel, Dan and fruit on the bottom yogurt, foreskin, whatever broads talk about. Sherman and his father followed, uh, followed after hanging back a few feet. You brought what I asked for, right, boy? Cletus asked his son in a hushed tone. Sherman then reached into the breast pocket of his jacket and pulled out a small vial containing a brightly colored liquid. Yes, I did, Daddy, but I still say this is a bad idea. My love formula should not be used by someone of your age with a heart condition. How am I supposed to show your mother I am still spry and vivacious if I can't lay the dick down on her like a young Colin Powell? (laughs) All right, all right, just take it. Lord knows I don't need to know the details, said Sherman. Cletus took the vial and put it in his pants pocket. A half hour later, the whole family was enjoying a delicious feast prepared by Anna. You do, something different to these, uh, you do something different to these collard greens, Mama? They delicious, asked Sherman. I added lemon and cayenne to give it some kick, she replied. Maybe you should try some of that in the bedroom, Cletus, said Grandma, egging him on. Sound like you could use it. <laughs> Cletus dropped his fork and stared dead into her eyes. This was it. <laughs> he had to shut the old bag up. And not just right now, but once and for all. He rose from the table slowly then reached into his pocket, poured out the vial of Sherman's love potion, and swallowed it in one gulp. Cletus, you said that was for later tonight, pleaded Anna. Ignoring his wife, Cletus grabbed the end of his belt and pulled it all the way way through his pant loops in one tug. He then proceeded to wrap the belt around his neck tightly. (laughs) A few seconds later, and the mixture of autoerotic asphyxiation plus Sherman's love formula made Cletus's penis fully erect. Anna was shocked at what she was witnessing. She could barely speak. In all the years married to him, she had no idea he was on some David Carradine shit. (laughs) It's about time you manned up, said Grandma an inch from Cletus's face. As his terrified family looked on, Cletus ripped open Grandma's girdle and tore off her adult diaper, exposing her chafed civil rights era bippy. I should have done this a long time ago, you relic from a shameful time in our nation's history, said Cletus as he got to work. Sherman was in shock. He couldn't process the sight of seeing the man who taught him how to play catch pounding the gaping, spoiled, pinkish-brown meat locker of the woman who taught him how to make lemonade. However, from a scientific point of view, he found himself almost fascinated at just how frighteningly elastic his elderly grandmother's labia appeared to be. It reminded him of why he got into the field in the first place. You finally learned to man up, didn't you, Cletus? said Grandma, placing two of her own fingers deep into her corroded, salty butthole. As as horrifying as this scene was, Anna suddenly began to feel arousal. Seeing the man she loved plowing that monument of a vagina that had previously gone untouched since the Reagan administration, like it was a piece of discarded taffy stuck under a pair of baseball cleats, or more accurately, a pinata made of turkey bacon, began to turn her on. Without having any control over herself, her mouth opened and she blurted out, Ooh, Hercules, Hercules! <laughs> Suddenly she grabbed Cletus's unclipped dick and pulled it from her mother's callous and scaly cooter, creating a Tupperware burping sound so loud she thought she heard a car in the distance careen into a tree. <laughs> Without missing a beat, Anna placed the penis in her mouth and began servicing her husband the way that only a 275-pound black woman could. <laughs> Sherman, still in utter shock, turned to his wife for some sort of emotional support and found Denise with her mouth agape. But not because she was in shock at what she was seeing, 
but because it was currently being filled with one of Anna's impressively large brown areolas. Denise shouted Sherman, what are you doing? This is my chance, Denise replied with a mouthful of her mother-in-law. All this time we've been together, all I wanted was to feel like a part of your family. You know, ever since my parents died in that horrific casino fire, I've felt so alone, Denise said as Grandma penetrated her with one of the cannolis. But now I'm finally starting to feel like I have a family again. Cletus then took the other end of the cannoli and placed it inside his wife's cock dungeon. As the pastry entered them from opposite ends, Cletus commanded that both women, his wife and daughter-in-law, push back a little. And what could only be described as a scene from Tyler Perry Presents Requiem for a Dream. (laughs) (laughs) My clumps, my clumps, my lovely lady clumps, Cletus sang as the dessert pushed against his daughter-in-law's lower intestines. Sherman was filled with so many conflicting feelings. Disgust, regret, nausea, horror, but also arousal? This proved what Sherman suspected all along about himself. He was a cuckold. He liked seeing his wife degraded, even if it was at the hands of his own loving family. The feeling of forbidden lust in him kept building and building as he watched his fat family fuck each other until the cows came home. As fast as he could, he undid his pants, poured out his dick and balls, and began to jerk it. Oh, God, he said, this professor's about to bust a nutty. (laughs) Just then, Grandma leaned in and put her mouth around her grandson's engorged cock. Sherman Sherman then climaxed so hard, he was pretty sure he now had the ability to time travel, as Grandma swallowed his taboo seed. An hour later, the entire family sat on the back porch, silently drinking coffee, avoiding eye contact with one another. After a moment of awkward silence, Grandma chimed in, You know, I think I prefer the cannolis from the bakery you brought last time better. And they lived happily ever after. (laughs) Jerry Moskowitz. Thanks, man. And your final round one competitor, Guy Branham. Obergefell v. Kasich. 627 U.S. Reporter 231-2014. On July 22, 2013, a federal district judge in Ohio issued a temporary restraining order requiring that the Ohio Registrar list on an eminent death certificate the surviving same-sex spouses uh, of a terminally ill man despite a state law precluding recognition of same-sex marriage and striking down the relevant provisions of Ohio law as violating principles of equal protection. Judge Timothy Black relied heavily on United States versus Windsor, which struck down Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act, requiring federal recognition of same-sex marriage and granted, uh, granted by the states, but left intact Section 2 of DOMA, which expressly permits states to disregard same-sex marriages granted in other states. The restraining order was overturned by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. Justice Ginsburg delivered the opinion of the court. <laughs> This court's approach to questions of consensual same-sex contact have shifted significantly over the course of the past 30 years. Since the Bowers decision in 1987 affirmed the rights of the states to criminalize same-sex contact, the court has slowly retreated from this standing, first putting in question in Romer v. Evans, then overturning Bowers in Lawrence v. Texas, and most recently declaring that the Federal Defense of Marriage Act could not constitutionally bar the federal government from recognizing same-sex marriages deemed illegal by the state in U.S. v. Windsor. However, in the course of these decisions... The logic of this court has continually been obscure. 
Writing in Lawrence, Justice Kennedy assured us that legalizing gay sex didn't make gay marriage legal. Writing in Windsor, Justice Kennedy said the federal government must recognize same-sex marriages, but states were free to forbid them. It also continues to be unclear to what extent this court deems homosexuals to be a protected class for equal protection purposes. Considering this stark lack of clarity, I sought the advice of my brother and sister justices. I went first to the junior most associate justice, Ms. Kagan. I came in through her chambers, but found that all of her clerks, mostly large-boned athletic girls from Berkeley and Yale, were gone. I continued through and knocked on the door of her office. The door was not properly closed, so it swung open, revealing Justice Kagan laying back on her desk with her feet propped up on a chair, an off-white panty girdle hanging off of her left ankle. Pardon me, Justice Kagan, are you all right? Justice Kagan let out a terrifying moan, so I flipped on the lights. At that moment, Justice Sotomayor raised her head out of Justice Kagan's judicial robes, her face thoroughly moistened with vaginal juices. I excused myself and explained that I was there to discuss Obergefell v. Kasich, and Elena ordered Sonia to get back to her job, which apparently involved lapping at Elena's vulva with an intensity I had previously only seen Sonia apply to a plate of picadillo and rice. Which I guess made a lot of sense, since Elena's vagina did bear more than a passing resemblance to chopped beef that had been stewed with olives for several hours. I explained to the girls that I needed their help to convince Justice Kennedy to overturn Section 2 of DOMA, and they readily agreed. Well, Elena agreed, and I think Sonia said something while she was gnawing on Elena's labia majora. (laughs) The three of us headed down to Justice Breyer's chambers and found him sitting doodling intellectual powerhouse of the liberal wing of the Supreme Court, Stephen Breyer. But then he hurried to shove the page underneath some books so I wouldn't see, because... You know. <laughs> I asked him if he'd help us try to convince Justice Kennedy that the, constitutional recogn- the Constitution recognized a fundamental right to marriage and that the Equal Protection Clause forbade discrimination against homosexuals. Justice Breyer said, why don't I just write one of my powerfully worded poetic decisions to sway Scalia and the rest of the conservatives to our side? I am an amazing writer. I have served on the court with Justice Breyer for over 20 years, so I know how to listen to him say things like that without laughing in his face. But Justice Sotomayor threw up a little in her mouth. I don't know if it was Breyer or Sonia's type 2 diabetes or just that Elena's vagina had not been properly refrigerated. But Sonia totally got sick and she's a healthy eater. So her, her vomit in your mouth burps afterwards weren't exactly a pleasure to be around. While Sonia was recovering, I leaned over and said, Look, Stephen, we need your help with this. You're the intellectual powerhouse of the liberal wing of the Supreme Courts. (laughs) He immediately stood erect in more ways than one and asked, What can I do? And that is why Obamacare is an unconstitutional use of the Commerce Clause, concluded Justice Scalia as the four of us crowded into the Supreme Court conference chamber. He sat like an obese cat next to Chief Justice Roberts. (laughs) Justice Kennedy, the bland Sacramento Catholic who served as the lone moderate on the court, was across from Scalia. Justice Alito, who does not have a personality, and a quietly sleeping Justice Clarence Thomas rounded out their numbers. Bar the door, I told Elena, who is the junior most justice, was responsible for opening and closing the door. (laughs) Ha ha, what's up, Ruth? Here to convince me that dogs and cats can make babies together? Scalia laughed heartily. 
The other conservatives chortled along lifelessly, except for Justice Thomas, who was still fitfully napping. <laughs> no, Nino, I'm here to convince you that allowing states to ignore the legal marriage agreements of, state, of other states is a violation of the full faith and credit clause. Yeah, I got a full faith and credit clause that no fanook is gonna get married in Alabama while I'm still watching. <laughs> The problem, Nino, is that you lack sympathy, the ability to understand the experiences of others. When you're dealing with issues that you understand, you're a cogent, logical thinker. The problem isn't your legal philosophy, it is your empathy. What the fuck, Ruth? Did they tear out your brain and replace it with Oprah's back when they were irradiating your pancreatic cancer? Nino intoned. Then I quoted the words of one of Canada's greatest polit political thinkers, Shania Twain. Let's go, girls. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Sonia and Elena pulled off their judicial robes to reveal that each was wearing a harness with a judicial gavel fitted into the dildo hole. <laughs> Elena shoved the still sleeping Justice Thomas to the ground and wedged the handle of her gavel between his generous buttocks and into his tight hole. Sonia reached back to slap Justice Roberts, but he was already on the ground, his ankles by his ears, his creamy, relatively young for the Supreme Court, uh, bottom perfectly hairless. Oh no, please stop, uh, cried Chief Justice Roberts. I have never done anything like this before in my life, and it is only a coincidence that my children, Jack and Josie, are adopted. <laughs> Sonia slid the gavel in, but unlike Justice Thomas's butt, there was no resistance. <laughs> oh, said Chief Justice Roberts, please stop raping me, and please stop raping me with this dildo which might fit my buttocks a little bit better, he said as he reached under the conference table and pulled out a 13-inch long, grossly thick dildo. <laughs> Justice Alita ran over to the door, which was just shut and not locked or anything, but he refused to touch it because opening and closing the door is the responsibility of the junior most justice. <laughs> And being part of a gang rape might be humiliating, but it's not as humiliating as being the door bitch. <laughs> Justice Stevens shoved his dick into Justice Alito's mouth, and then they had boring, unnoteworthy sex for about 20 minutes, during which they both thought about their wives to stay hard. <laughs> but the real challenge was for me. Unlike the new girls, I didn't need a harness. Since President Carter appointed me to the DC circuit in 1980, my beloved husband Martin and I had a little game we played. I slipped the head of my gavel into my vagina and clenched. Those kegels I learned at the JCC of the Upper West Side were still paying off. <laughs> Ruth, you can't just think you can fuck us into giving up our beliefs. The simple truths of nature are on our side. Two men can't make a baby. That's not a marriage. It's not natural, cried Scalia. Tell me this isn't natural, I said, as I climbed under Justice Scalia's robe, then stood up and let his dick, thick but shorter than my beloved husband Martin's, tickle against my white lace collar. I grabbed his balls, rolling his man meat around in my mouth until it achieved the hardness of a cotto salami. I allowed the penis to slide into my bun, tighter than any hole left on his wife Maureen. <laughs> I cannot enjoy this, cried Scalia. I am a strict constructionist. I cannot interpret the Constitution as many, meaning anything outside of the framers' intention. I guided his hard cock into the chemotherapy shunt in my chest. <laughs> I'd gotten him for my pancreatic cancer. I'd handled my breast cancer with a nice, simple double mastectomy, but pancreatic cancer was a tougher fight, so the doctors had installed a hole in my chest to administer the drugs more easily. 
Though I had defeated cancer, as a Jewish woman in my 80s, I'm likely to contract seven to 12 more kinds of cancer in the next four years. And the doctors thought it was safest to leave the hole in. Like any good attorney, I realized any hole should be exploited. So I let Nino fuck me in my chest hole and bent my 87 pound frame and penetrated Antonine's butthole with the rosewood handle of the gavel, which had been a gift from Temple Beth Israel of the Upper West Side. I heard a sound not unlike a cat being run over by a Humvee, and I pulled Nino's robes to see what was going on. Sonia, though a confirmed bachelorette with no real dating history, was apparently really good and experienced at fucking people with strap-on objects. Her pushy, pussy juice was gushing all over the huge dildo and into the butt of Chief, Chief Justice Roberts, who was jizzing rivulets of cum onto his face, like Martin Luther King described the waters of liberty flowing over all equally. Elena, though a confirmed bachelorette with no real dating history, was apparently really good at uh, experienced at fucking people with strap-on objects. She ground out a four final thrusts with her gavel handle into Clarence Thomas's butt. Then he, for a moment, awakened. What? Where? Who put this pubic hair on my coke? He mumbled. And a thin grayish trickle of semen came out of his half-hard cock. And Stephen Breyer totally finished fucking Justice Alito, but no one looked or cared what was happening. <laughs> but none of it mattered, none of it, unless I could break the resolve of Justice Scalia. I refuse, I refuse to enjoy this, cried the mountainous buttery man who was fucking her in her, uh, fucking me in my chest cancer hole. <laughs> you can break my behymen, but you cannot break my beliefs. <laughs> I pulled Scalia's dick out of my chest closed my shunt, then climbed on his back, slowly twisting the gavel I used when I judged my daughter's moot court competition at Columbia Law School, and swung my legs over his, riding him like a horse. You cannot just make up laws, Scalia yelled. You cannot just decide gay people have a fundamental right to marry based on a constitution written when it was legal to throw them in jail for having sex. Why are the DC schools desegregated? I growled in his ear. No, cried Scalia. Why are federal affirmative action programs illegal? No, cried Scalia. Why is the Voting Rights Act of 1964 unconstitutional? This would all make sense if you had gone to law school. <laughs> I pressed my rosewood cock directly against Scalia's prostate as I pressed my mind and tongue against the greatest logical fallacy of conservative jurisprudence. <laughs> it up because we decided the due process clause of the fifth amendment reverse incorporated the equal protection clause of the 14th amendment though the equal protection clause expressly precludes application to the federal government it's a lie it's all a lie ignoring the well-regulated militia clause of the second amendment reviving sovereign immunity we made it all up we say our scrutiny is strict but it's not it's loose as loose as I, we need to be to stop black people and gays from getting the rights we want to keep from them as loose as i want my butthole for all time as you Fuck me into oblivion. And yeah, he just all over the room. <sighs> you did it. You won, said Scalia. I'll vote for your stupid gay marriage case. Nah, I said. We're good. <laughs> No, a quiet, solitary clap came from the lone remaining justice. 
Anthony Kennedy stood up and said, I told Ruth that she could get, if she could get Anthony and Scalia to give a fuck about anyone but himself, she had my votes. <laughs> the court overturns the court of, uh, this court overturns the court of appeals uh, on a vote of five to four. Guy Branham, stay right there, man. Let's get everybody from round one back up. Where are you going, guy? All right, so you guys will be voting on a winner. Round one, everybody back up. Uh, first, I'm just going to remind you what everybody read, and then in a second, you'll vote with your applause on a winner for round one. Now, John Roy had to run off to a different show, but he was first with Top Chef, followed that with Susanna Lee with The Price is Right. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. We're going to vote after I remind you. John Roy with Top Chef, Susanna Lee with Price is Right, Cole Stratton with Police Academy, Jared Moskowitz with The Clumps, and Guy Branham with The Supreme Court. So now, with your applause, starting with John Roy, Top Chef. Susanna Lee, Price is Right. Cole Stratton, Police Academy. Jared Moskowitz, The Clumps. And Guy Branham, Supreme Court. All right, it's very close. One more time between Susanna Lee and Guy Branham, starting with Susanna Lee, Price is Right. <laughs> Guy Branham, Supreme Court. <laughs> Susanna Lee, your round one champion. The Price is Right, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you guys so much. Now this is the that does it for round one. To hear round two from this show, download episode 60 next week. Hey, if you like what you heard, please subscribe and rate on iTunes. It's a big help as our positive comments. Negative comments can always be directed to the podcast Terrified with Dave Ross. Upcoming live shows include April 15th at Nerd Melton, Los Angeles, May 7th at The Rendezvous in Seattle, Washington, May 8th through 11th I'll be at the Bridgetown Comedy Festival in Portland, Oregon. I'll be doing stand-up as well as competitive erotic fanfiction, actual uh, dates and times to be announced. Stay tuned for details on Cromfest in Omaha, Austin Sketchfest, Limestone Comedy Fest in Bloomington, plus Chicago, Denver, and more. See you next time. Now leaving Nerdist.com.